Excited to be recording with you in general. Excited to be talking about this show in particular. Mm-hmm. A little gem from Summer 90. Yeah. Is this the first time we've talked about two shows from the same tour? Uh, no, because we did Europe 72. We did a couple mm. things with that. But other than that, yes, I think so. So it's actually twice. That one and then two from Dead & Co. 2022. Because uh, right. we talked about Cincinnati and then City Field. But Summer 90, now the third tour that we've talked twice about, which is exciting. And I think that Dave Lemieux's excitement over this tour is evident because this is the second straight year that he's capped off the four Dave's Picks releases with a show from Summer 90. Last year, it was two shows from, I think, Noblesville, Indiana is where the venue is actually like located, but it's basically a suburb, a suburb of Indianapolis. That show is from just a few weeks after this one from June 23rd, 1990 at Autzen Stadium in Eugene, Oregon. So two years in a row, he's kind of capped off the releases with a nice summer 90 show, or in that case, shows. Did you listen to the show from the day after this, Sunday, June 23rd? No, I didn't get a chance to. Me neither. I wish I would have. Yeah. Get the full experience of Oregon that weekend. Yeah, but that, that's all right. Interestingly, the shows for the next release are also from Oregon. Um, they already announced that. It's going to be, I think, two shows from... O- October 1st and 2nd, right? From Portland? In 1977. Mm, That's right. Portland, Oregon, 1977. So it's interesting that they have gone with two show releases a number of times over the last few years, but they've kind of mixed it up. In 2021 and 2020, it was the last Dave's Picks release was a two show, four disc banger. And then next year, they'll start it off with the two show release. This year, it was the third release. Yeah, we got it. Number three, the 68-69 combo. Yeah. So as always, so much Grateful Dead music coming out. Um, Should we start with the days between? We should. We should. Well, Dave, it's been two weeks. Since we last talked, when we recorded with Justin Kreutzman, one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Mm-hmm. What, if anything, dead related has happened in your life since then? <laughs> I got nothing because we are moving. So it's been a lot of stress and packing with moving stuff. So not a lot of opportunities to like get out and see live music or well, then what explore about, some dead stories. How has the dead... Uh, have they supported your moving effort by giving you a soundtrack to packing it all? (laughs) Um, yeah, it was this show I was, you know, preparing for this episode. So did a lot of listening to this show while packing up and, uh, found West LA fadeaway is a good packing song, but we'll get into that, that one later. Okay. So that's kind of a combo platter days between and little entree to this show. How were you listening to it? Do you just have it playing through your TV? Either through the TV or just through the computer. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, what about you? I hope you have an actual story because I don't really have a story this week. 
nothing really from like in person bopping around um dead stuff but one thing that i will say is that during the days between i've continued to try to learn how to play guitar and um i have a rudimentary very rudimentary version of friend of the devil down pretty oh nice is exciting yeah unfortunately i play it really slowly <laughs> and as someone who is deeply on the record as like i'm a much bigger fan of fast-paced friend of the devil it is a bit ironic that now i can play it myself and i'm seeing the <laughs> the pitfalls of trying to play it fast i also only have an electric guitar so it doesn't sound quite as you know it's not quite the same uh, as like the album version um but that's okay so yeah not a lot going on in the days between i mean to be fair to us it is november bob's tour ended a couple weeks ago i saw phil and friends but th- that three weekend run at the cap ended two weeks ago we're kind of you know we're between right now as we're recording this is going to come out the tuesday before thanksgiving and we're just kind of in the doldrums of like late fall to be honest you know halloween's over thanksgiving hasn't happened yet everyone's a bit ready for the end of year holidays i think to get some time off to get some time to you know recharge our batteries yeah so if you're feeling that way too hopefully this show will be a little respite um and hopefully uh maybe you're listening to it as you travel for thanksgiving or you know you make some make some food whatever you're doing hope that you enjoy your thanksgiving if you celebrate we have some canadian fans and some european fans so you probably are not celebrating thanksgiving but we hope you're having a good a good time at the end of november in any case all right let's get on with the show Saturday, June 23rd, 1990 at Autzen Stadium in Eugene, Oregon, home of the Oregon Ducks football team. Go Ducks. <laughs> Go Ducks. This show finds the dead really in a similar place to the show that we talked about from RFK, which was played, what was that, like a few days, like three weeks ago. later? Yeah. I thought for some reason, oh yeah, because it was 7-12-1990, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. So- We talked a lot about the tour and the year in Dead History during that episode. If you want to hear about that, go check that episode out. We're not going to get deep into that again because we've already kind of trodden that ground. But I mean, it was a truly national tour. They were all over the country. And as evidenced by the fact that our last show we talked about was from RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C. And this one is from Autzen Stadium all the way across the country in Oregon. The lineup is the same as it's been for over a decade at this point. Billy, Mickey, Bobby, Jerry, Phil, and Brent on the keys. And that's really where we find the dead at this point in their career. What's going on on June 23rd, 1990? The top Billboard song in the of the moment was It Must Have Been Love by Roxette, a song I did not know, and when I listened to it, I still don't recognize it. I thought you were going to tease me with it must have been the roses and i was like no way um <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no so this one it really it was on the charts for 12 weeks it was number one for at least two that i could find and it went on to be the number two song of this year of 1990 behind hold on wow. by wilson phillips 
that song has had much better staying power than this one. I mean, I just said the title and many of you immediately were singing it in your head. Um, so this one though, not so much. I didn't recognize it when I heard it. I guess it's from the pretty women, uh, pretty woman soundtrack. So uh, you can see why it would be a big one. The number two song that week was step by step by new kids on the block. Uh, and the top album was please hammer. Don't hurt them. This was the same song. This is the same album that was at the top of the charts at during our RFK show. And I think I said this then, but this was the top album of the year. Um, it This was its third week of 21 at the top of the charts in 1990. The next week, it got unseated by Step by Step, New Kids on the Block, for one week. And then the next 18 weeks through early November, MC Hammer was back at the top of the charts. <laughs> Obviously, the number one selling album of the year. I mean, just yeah. a, a monster, monster record. So good for MC Hammer. Birthdays stacked. Nice. Bob Fosse, June Carter Cash, Randy Jackson. Okay. Of American Idol fame. Yep. It's going to be a no for me, dog. <laughs> A.T. Tunstall, Jason Mraz, Ladanian Tomlinson, and Tim Anderson. Wow. Really across acting, dancing, music, sports. And although I buried the lead, this is also the birthday of the Grateful Dead Zone, Robert Hunter. Hey, nice. So great day for birthdays. One of our better ones. Definitely. June 23rd just has kind of a nice ring to it too, doesn't it? Like 623, all these kind of curvy, crooked numbers. <laughs> I like it. It makes me kind of wish that my birthday was June 23rd. Wow. <laughs> Although I guess summer birthdays are always tough when you're a kid because my birthday is January 25th. And so I always got to celebrate my birthday in class, like with my friends. My mom. Yeah, you don't get that in a June, July, early August birthday. No, no, no. So that's all right. Deaths, Jonas Salk and Peter Falk. I found a third actually. Um, but yeah, Peter Falk of Columbo fame. Mm -hmm. Chuck Taylor, who invented the sneakers. Well, didn't invent the sneakers, but you know, of no, didn't he? Chuck Taylor's fame. I think that Converse he was. Fame. I think that he was very involved in the design of those sneakers because he was an early basketball player, right? Yes. No, in those sneakers, yes, not the sneaker in general. <laughs> yeah, not the sneaker. That's but yes, fair. of the Converse Chuck Taylors, he also passed away on June twenty third. So here's a pro tip for our audience: Chuck Taylors, known, loved by many. For a brief period of time, I think in the aughts, they came out with the Chuck Twos, Chuck Taylor Twos, like Roman numeral II. The whole thing with those was that they had a more comfortable insole, so they're more comfortable to walk around in and they last a little bit longer. After owning a pair of Chuck Twos, they've been discontinued. I don't want to have any other type of, of Chuck Taylors. They're so much more comfortable. Whoa, okay. So if you can get your hands on a pair of Chuck Twos, they sell still sometimes on eBay or on Poshmark, like kind of used clothing things. They're the same price as, as Chuck T's. Get after it. They're so much more comfortable. And I, I love Chuck Taylors, but those are even more comfortable. All right. The venue. Autzen Stadium. Have you ever been to Oregon? I have never set foot in the state of Oregon. Unfortunately, I would love to. 
Same. Yeah. I've never been either. It's uh, near the top of our hit list for my wife and I, for where we'd like to, where we'd like to go next. Um, but uh, this stadium, Autzen stadium opened in 1967, uh, the home of the Oregon ducks football team. As I said, capacity 56,000, one of those big old college football venues. The dead played the third ever concert at Autzen stadium. Do you want to guess what year that was in? It opened in 67. 1969. Good guess, just based on the time of year that it opened, but it was actually mm-hmm. 1978. Oh, wow. Yeah, they didn't open it up for concerts for a long while. As I, I'm pretty sure that I found that the first one was the Doobies. Like the Doobie Brothers played the first. Don't remember who played the second. And then the dead played the third in 1978. And then they would play there a total of 10 times between 78 and 94, including co-billing with Santana in 1979. And then with Bob Dylan in 1987, some of the Dylan and the dead album is from that show. Other than the dead, not a ton of notable concerts there over the years. A couple of others to point out though, uh, U2 in 1997 with Rage Against the Machine as their opener, which is an interesting twin billing. Not a combo I think a lot of people were ready for at the time. <laughs> no, probably not. I mean, the the through line between the two is like both activist bands, like both bands that are super political and, you know, putting their message out there in their music. Right. Style-wise. A different approach. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? Shout out to Bono and Edge and everyone else for having this rap rock band support them pretty cool stuff yeah uh, another very notable one was dead and company a very well-known show at at Autzen stadium on june 30th 2018 if you go to deadyversion.com and look at the top shows this one was it held the number one spot for like the first month that the site was live until the second night at wrigley field in 2021 which like the day after the show unseated it and has just continued to rise in the estimation of the fans since then, which I mean, that Wrigley show is really great. Dead and Company, yeah. yeah. But this Eugene show is also awesome. This one has um, a dark star, El Paso, dark star, a great cold rain and snow opener highlights abound the for deal opener. Cold rain and snow is like weirdly late in set one, but just, Oh, you're excellent. right. Yeah. Yeah. Electric deal opener. Yeah, that is a that yeah. I think that before this summer Cincinnati show, that was the best deal. Mm-hmm. Um I, and I think it's still number two in the Deddy version ratings. So yeah, I mean th- there this is you know, it's a tough venue to fill out, I would think, with fifty six thousand people. This show, um, Saturday, June twenty third, had thirty six thousand fans in the barn, according to the Eugene Register Guard, their local paper. At that time, it was the largest rock and roll concert in Oregon history. Again, according to the paper, that record would stand until the following year when the Dead welcomed forty four thousand fans. So this year, in nineteen ninety, they played two shows back to back on this day, Saturday, and then the following day, Sunday, the twenty fourth. The next year, they were there in August for the twentieth, twenty first, and twenty second. A three night run packed the house all three nights. There's, I'm gonna put a link to this in the show notes. Um, you can find the Eugene Register Guard from the twenty fourth online on Google News, and there are two articles about the Dead, both in the arts section, and one of them is. 
the entire article is just about how much the police liked the show. And by that, I mean the police force of Eugene, Oregon, not the band, the police sting was not in the barn on this one, but this Eugene detective is quoted as saying, quote, I'd rather work nine grateful dead concerts than one Oregon football game. He was like, these fans are much less belligerent than Oregon football fans. He goes on to say, this is a mellow, mellow group of people. I didn't expect any tremendous task here today, but it's been far more mellow than I even expected. That quote's also in the, uh, in the liner notes for, um, for the box set. Yeah. Dave Lemieux talks about how delighted he was to read that and how it was like a point of pride when he saw that the next day and was like, yeah, we're killing it as it should have been. That's an awesome thing um so good job by everyone who was in in the building that day and um yeah it's cool that (laughs) that the police were saying that it's also cool because around this time late 80s early 90s is when like the pandemonium of the dead was kind of in full effect and uh especially in years later than 1990 i think like 92 93 is when venues Maybe like this one, not this one in particular though, stopped letting the dead play there because they were like, We can't do this. Like you you're it's too much chaos. We need to set up like an army of porta potties and like way too much security. People camp out, there's so much litter. You know, you have all these people who are not heads that are just coming for the party and really making the scene a, a big downer. So it's cool to see this story from the nineteen nineties where, you know, these Oregon heads are just like or and everyone traveling from around the area were just so good. So all really good stuff. This was an afternoon show, as you can read about in the liner notes. They little feet opened for the dead. Um and then the dead went on around 2 30. Really cool way to see the Grateful Dead. Um I I love the idea of an afternoon show. I don't think I've really been to any afternoon concerts in my entire life. I don't unless it's like part of a festival, I don't think so either. Like it mostly is like a 7 seven thirty, kickoff usually um yeah. again unless it's like a summer festival or something mm-hmm. so kind of cool i know that vampire weekend used to do these brunch shows where they would play in a place like friday and mm. saturday and then they would find a venue where they could play at like noon or eleven thirty the following morning that's pretty neat and their music it, it also makes sense like that i could see that we should talk about the packaging of this just a little bit. Yeah. And then we'll get into the set list. So what did you think about, well, I'll describe the album cover to those of you who have not seen it. It is the fourth installment by the dead's artist in residence this year. We talked about him for a considerable bit during the Dave's picks 41 episode. And then we've, you know, talked about his art in the two ensuing volumes. This one, he has, some hippie skeletons um, kind of all celebrating amongst the pines. And then you can kind of see the facade. That's not necessarily the right word, but like the stadium tier, like right in the top corners. Yeah. He snuck them in peeking over the top. Um, So I thought that, yeah, I thought that that was cool. It's also a bit of a through line between his art. Like when you look at the top third of each of these volumes, in the first one, it's the very top of the Baltimore Civic Center. And then the second one was at, where was that? Winterland? Winterland. Yeah, yeah it was like you, the sunrise or sunset. 
it was. And then in the right side of that one, you can see the front of the Winterland building. The only one where you don't get that is the volume 43, which was a much more simplified approach and it really worked for that. So um, yeah, I, I mean, cool artwork. I think it's, there's, it's not like super busy. There's, it's just nicely done. Um, but I, I liked it. I thought that it was good packaging. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't catch any like Oregon or Eugene specific things, but it was just a cool, like the, a lot of green tone made it feel West coasty or Northwestern with all that green all over the place. Yeah. And I do think that that you have a massive like sun ball, I guess, in the middle of the album. Um, and it's kind of cool that the tones of this are Oregon colors. The only, the only like Oregon note, like you said, green Oregon, the Oregon ducks are green and yellow are like their two colors. And the Dave's picks in like that kind of crest on the front of the album is in yellow type, which I think is a nod to the ducks. And then same with at the bottom of the album cover, Autzen stadium, U of Oregon, 62390 is also in yellow, which contrasted with the, like you're saying all the green, Green is mm-hmm. by far the primary color of the album cover. It's kind of cool. Otherwise, yeah, I didn't notice like there last year, um, the one at William and Mary from 78, uh, it's like in a dorm. The front cover is like in the dorm at William and Mary, and there's some kind of cool uh Virginia stuff going on there. And then the Noblesville, Indiana one, there's like a Hoosiers logo and stuff. There's nothing that explicit on this one. It's more subtle, but really nicely done. Then inside uh, the CDs are more pines and the back behind the trees are take images taken from the front cover of the pines. Good liner notes, as you said, it's Dave Lemieux's story of being at the at this show and the following day. And, you know, about his his trip from being in New York for a wedding to getting out to Eugene, seeing these shows, and then following the band back east over the next couple of weeks. It seems like it was a delightful time to see The Grateful Dead. So that's the packaging. As always, they, they just they don't miss with these releases. All right, let's get into the set list. Is so. This is the second straight show that has opened with "Feel Like a Stranger" that we've talked about. It's not shocking because the Dead played "Feel Like a Stranger" as the show opener ninety-seven times of the two hundred seven times that they played it in their tenure. Um, everything about this version is just a hair sleepier than the one that we just heard from nineteen eighty-one before this. The jam during the back half of this song is still really good, and I think that. Like during that part, you have Brent just twinkling away on the high end of his keyboard, kind of a metallic-y sound to a lot of what he's doing, not just in this song, but throughout the show. But one thing about this song that I think is a harbinger of good things to come throughout this entire release is as much as any Grateful Dead release I can think of over the last few years, you can really clearly hear each person in the mix. Yes. And that benefits everything. And so it's kind of cool on this song. You can really parse like what everyone is doing with the exception of the two drummers because they're playing together, but 
I mean, you can really hear Phil, you can really hear Bobby, and you can really hear Jerry, especially Phil. They cranked Phil up in the mix for this release, which I I was a big fan of. Yeah. I thought it was very fitting that the show we talk about after interviewing Justin Kreutzman, Billy's son, that the drumming stood out as stellar. The drums are crisp. And I was like, that just feels feels right that we spent a lot of time profiling the documentary, Let There Be Drums, and here are the drums just kicking us off in the right way. Yeah. And now Let There Be Drums. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I really liked the ending too. The Again, drums in particular stood out as they propelled us to that last, uh, what do you call it? Like that triad, that boom, 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 to, to end the song. Mm-hmm. I get what you're saying about the this contrasted to like 10 years before with the Madison Square Garden. For me, the 81 feels like a stranger opener was like the party goer. Like it was just going and being a wild, exciting time from start to finish. Whereas this one was more of the host of the party. Mm-hmm. Like it waited for you to come on in, get settled, and things then things started to really groove at the 3:30, four-minute mark. So it was kind of like a different, a different role, but still a good, feels like a stranger opener. I like that description. That makes sense too. A show in the, in the mid afternoon, you'd want a different vibe than a show primetime New York city at Madison square garden. Yeah. And David Lemieux talked about that in the notes. He was like, the East coast shows feel more intense. This afternoon show had a lazy vibe the whole time. Oh, but yeah. in a in a good way. Yeah, I agree. It's evident in I mean, discs 1, 2 and 3. You you catch that. Mm-hmm. Um so after Feel Like a Stranger, they play West LA Fade Away, which you mentioned earlier being a good song to move to. Tell me why. Just like, you know, packing around, like you're not going for a run, you're not exerting a lot of energy, but like kind of inventorying and like getting things into boxes and just kind of doing that with the Again, more lazy riff. Like, dun, 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 dun. And you can kind of just like <laughs> move your shoulders a little bit, still, you know, wrap up glasses and newspaper and magazine paper and like put them in and make sure you got everything. I don't know. It was more of just like a steady strut that allowed you to kind of have it on in the background and bop your head while you did another activity rather than being like a high energy song you could run to or a song that you kind of wanted to fade into your couch to just had a good good bluesy groove that made it easier okay i like that strut there is a bit of a strut to this song you got this little like you can a strut is a good way of describing like kind of the the pace of it yeah I, i liked this version um, this was only the fourth time that this sequence opened a show from Feel Like a Stranger into West LA. Uh, mm-hmm. West LA Fadeaway was only played second at a concert 22 times, never as a set one opener. So this was as early as you'd ever hear it. The Jerry and Bobby interplay during the opening interlude is just tasty. They sound great together. And um, then, you know, really kind of decisive and clean drumming throughout this song, I thought. There are a couple moments where they aren't together, and I think it is more noticeable because of how clean it sounds the rest of the way. You get a little bit of sneakerish stuff and like an errant fill or an errant just like strike just a couple times during the song. 
nothing crazy, but like it is noticeable because it it does sound, especially in the beginning, so clean for like the first minute or two. And then there are a couple of little missteps. Brent with a beefy synth tone. It's really high in the mix. You can hear him pretty clearly. So yeah, I like this song with Jerry's voice circa summer 92. I think that this is like a really like slinky deviant sounding song and his rasp adds to that vibe. Helps it out. Yeah. As as someone who used to live in LA, do you connect with this song? Does this song like make a little more sense? Uh no, the because the part of LA that I lived in is not the vibe that they're talking about in this song. I can picture like like the west part of downtown LA. I mean, now a lot of it is like um ah oh, fuck, what's it? What do they call it? That strip where there's like a lot of like homelessness. Fuck, I'm totally blanking on the name. Skid Row. They're like kind of near Staples Center and stuff. Like it is kind of a slinky, sketchy area. But I lived in South, like South Bay near the beach. Things are just much more chill. <laughs> so um it's no, I don't I don't feel that like level of like, oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Gotcha. Um one thing that I will say about this song, the middle section post the first chorus, it sounds a bit jumbled to me. It's like not clicking together as well as I would like it to, but then they get deeper into the pocket as the song goes along. And I think that the closing minutes of this song are both hotter than everything that's preceded it for the first 15 minutes of the show and tighter. I think that they're much more together. So I thought that this song closed on a high note, but in the middle, I think that they kind of, maybe lost it a little bit masses loved it number nine west la fadeaway on heady version top 10 okay nice so after this we don't get a bobby blues song we get a a cowboy bobby song me and my uncle so for me a cowboy song after that sleazy super 80s open to the show it feels a bit discordant to me um, I mean, a blues song would have too, in fairness. But yeah, just this is not my preferred era for me and my uncle. I will say the kind of like echo they're working with, I just don't think really suits this song. It like both in the vocals and the guitar, but especially in the keys, I think that it doesn't sound nearly as good as like the kind of clean saloony sound that we always laud, especially for the Keith era. Yeah, I agree with you. I did like that Bob is still bringing a lot of passion on the mic. I agree musically, but lyrically, he was still giving it his all. Um, What I thought was the most impressive part of the song was actually the transition into Cumberland Blues. It rolls right into Cumberland really, really well um, with the drums kind of leading that charge. I do agree with that. The best part of the song was when the song ended is kind of the point I'm making. (laughs) (laughs) yeah and we both like this song so it's not like you know right we're you know down on it it's just like this era and not not the best it's not like i disliked it but it's just not my not my preferred era uh the the roll into cumberland i actually my first note is this raises my estimation of the preceding me and my uncle because i like this pairing so much same yeah i thought the way it I mean, there wasn't an ending in a beginning. It was so smooth and just transformed into Cumberland. Um, was really, really great. 
Yeah. It's like an evolution. You've got this kind of more straight ahead cowboy song into a much more bouncy, unique, deadified Western tune with uh, Cumberland Blues. This was the 10th and final time they played me and my uncle into Cumberland Blues. The first was on December 4th, 1969. So it had a a 21-year run where intermittently, you know, by that math, once every two years, they just throw this in for the fans. They played these two songs a combined 900 times. So the fact that they only did it as a one-two punch 10 times makes this, I think, pretty special. Yeah. Wow. Not a ton for me to add on Cumberland Blues, just a, a fine version, I thought. Yeah, I dug the laid back solo in like the middle of the song. Jerry had a little splash of MIDI in his guitar tone, mm-hmm. the musical instrument digital interface. Number 48 version on Heady Version for Cumberland. So um, throughout all the times they played it, this is still a still a halfway decent version. Yeah, it puts it in the top 15, 20%, which is good from here we get the first brent song and the only brent song of the night Mm -hmm. far from me this was not a well-known song for me this debuted in the live act in march 1980 you probably know it if you're ahead from this era as the second track on go to heaven and this was the third to last time they played it of 74 times during that you know decade-long run obviously they stopped playing it when brent died just about a month after this but um, I like the song. It it sounds like a whole different band from a completely different era than the two songs that come before it. You know, it's like, it's closer to what we heard in the first two songs, but not exactly the same. And also this song, one thought that just kept coming to my mind when I was listening to this song was like, Brent was a really kind of a hopeless romantic. Like so many of the songs that he wrote for the dead are like, about an unrequited love or you know (laughs) why don't you love me anymore what's going on sort of thing (laughs) yeah um it it's really yeah it really is like a heartbreak ballad yeah i liked it it did it felt out of place not the right word but it it stood out in that the two songs that come before it and then the song that comes next are so much like dead classics that yeah this brent ballad had a little a little spotlight on it and not in a bad way like this was a different song from a different era than the other songs and that's not a bad thing the last two minutes of this song jerry's soloing along with phil bopping around were really really solid um, fans loved it. Number seven, far from me on heady version. Again, you talked about 74 plays, so not a song they played a ton, but Top one 10%. that people liked. Yeah, I can. So I can definitely see why I, th- I th- do think this was a good version of this song. It's not like I went back and listened to other versions before it, but it's like wh- while this was on, I was like, oh, I like this. The supporting vocals from Bobby and Jerry remind me of like Frankie Valley or something like that. 
the way that they're harmonizing behind Brent, um, I thought it was really good and just different from anything that we would hear throughout the rest of this show. So shout out to them for, for that part. As you said, the song after this is also a dead classic. They love each other. Jerry does not have a handle on the vocals in the beginning of this song. He gets there, but in the beginning, he just doesn't have it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Brent's got it. Brent's picking him up on the organ. The organs and the kind of subtle drum work were a really solid start that I think picked up what Jerry was lacking a little bit. Yeah. And I, Jerry made up for it later on because his like the like really like kind of fiery accents he's putting on his playing throughout the middle and toward the end of this song are really great. But the soloing in the middle of this song is the thing that I really kind of focused on that really grabbed me. There's a description that our friend Zach Cropper, shout out to him, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper is his podcast if you want to go listen to it. He talks about this like rocking chair effect where with some dead songs, it sounds like you're, you can picture yourself just like sitting in a rocking chair, just moving right along, just smooth, steady, you know, just keeps you moving. He talks about it a lot with uh Terrapin station, kind of the, the, the back half of that song. I totally felt that vibe with the soloing in the middle. And I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the mellow vibe throughout this show. You know, go listen to a version of They Love Each Other from 1974 and how fiery it sounded back then compared to this one. And it's just, you know, easygoing, kind of keeps you bopping along, but not in a way that's going to make you like want to get up and run around. <laughs> yeah. Like not lazy, but just it takes its time. It's not in any rush. It, like we've talked about, it kind of started off on a faulty note and then picked up in the middle and improved as it went along. That's a, that's a good way to look at it from in a rocking chair. From here, they go into Cassidy. So we've talked before. We're both bigger Donna era Cassidy guys than the Brent era. But Mm -hmm. I still think that this was a, this was a pretty good version. Really nice playing from everyone, but I think that Phil's playing really stands out. It does. I was a little higher on this Cassidy uh, than than you are now. I thought it was crisp from start to finish. Thought Phil, like you talked about, stood out. Jerry noodled around. Bob was really, really good on the rhythm and support. Oh yeah. The drumming was pounding along at the end, which was fun to hear. And by by no means am I a Cassidy head, but man, I really liked this 1990 Cassidy. Bob's rhythm is fantastic. And just really everything Bob's doing, he is like way up in the mix. You can really hear him throughout the song, which is right. great. And I love how clearly we can hear him and Phil and what they're doing together. Jerry is tucked actually a bit back in the mix. You can't hear him nearly as clearly as anyone else, I, I don't think. And so, and I think the reason why is because what Bob is doing on this song is so great. So yeah, definitely huge shout out to Bob because this song is like one of his highlights of the whole yeah. show. He's, he sounds great.
Yeah, I, there there are some moments in this song where the drummers, I think, get off off rhythm with each other, but by the end they've found it again. And like you said, that kind of the toms and stuff at the end, it does sound really good. So you said you're not a big Cassidy head. Well, as you know, I'm no Jed head. And yet, the song that they play after Cassidy is our old friend Tennessee Jed, which we have not talked about in a, in a little while. After like a six episode run where we talked about it every single time, it, yeah. it gave us a little break, but now it's back. Now it's it's peaked its ugly head back into our lives. <laughs> no, I <laughs> hey actually... It is a nice, lazy summer version of Jed. Agreed. I think that this is a great version of Tennessee Jed. I enjoyed it thoroughly from from beginning to end this song if you want the rocking chair effect this song is full-on rocking chair oh yeah i mean it's it's just really good here's how good i thought this tennessee jed was i texted dave earlier this week that i was just walking around my kitchen singing tennessee jed out of nowhere to my dogs quote have i come full circle as a jed head end quote (laughs) is what you texted me yeah and you know, we'll see. The next time I hear Tennessee Jed, if I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, this song, then we'll know. <laughs> then it's official. But yeah, I was just like wandering around my kitchen singing this song because I liked this version so much. It got stuck in my head. So a big victory for the Jed heads among us. You know, yeah. just Jerry's guitar tone is is excellent during this song. I love how active Phil is. Same. His playing at like the five minute mark is just like so pleasant and optimistic sounding to me. And like, I just loved it. And then also shout out to Brent because there are these like very kind of, I don't mean this in a bad way, but like shrill sounding, like it's not quite arpeggios, but it is like a, just like a riding twinkle that he's doing around like seven to seven 30. That's underpinning what Jerry's doing. And it just sounds great. And then really brings us back home to that uh, final chorus and kind of some triumphant singing from Jerry at the end. Yeah. There's a fiery last minute for sure. And which is good because that upbeat energy in the last minute transitions into the upbeat set one closer of promised land. What do you think about this one? I thought it was just like a continuation of the Phil showcase that we'd gotten for the 10 minutes beforehand. Yeah. Heavy dose of Phil that Mm -hmm. has everybody grooving for sure. Yeah. And just a nice energetic end to the first set. Like you said, the back end of Jed, like the last call it three minutes is pretty upbeat and energetic. And then it transitions nicely into a really energetic set one closer that I think has the people fired up as they go to like take a break and come back ready to ready to groove some more in set too. You want to get a, a litmus test for how groovy this promised land was while we were packing up Gabby started dancing to promised land. So that's that's a, that's a good indicator of just how much groove Phil had in his bass. Yeah. No, that checks out. Number 66 promised land on heady version, a song that they played a boatload of times. So that's a It's a decent representation. It is. So now we're into the set break. That's the end of disc one. We've got two discs to go. What'd you think about disc one as a whole? I was a big fan. I really liked it. I I think when it started out, I was like, oh, this is going to be a little lazy. It's going to be laid back. Um, But the theme of set one and kind of the theme of the whole show is 
Yeah, yeah, they started out lazy, but then they picked it up in the middle and they ended really hot. Um, feels like a stranger. West LA fadeaway was like that. They love each other was like that. Tennessee Jed was like that. So that was kind of the the theme of the lazy afternoon in Oregon is that we can start out slow, start out mellow. And we'll take our time and find it along the way, and then when when we find it, we'll we'll really get after it. Yeah. That make I mean, that that checks out to me. It sounds about right. Um, do you feel like they got after it as intent with as much gusto during parts of discs two and three? Um, parts of disc three, absolutely, especially the ending. Um, yeah. disc two. To me, there's one part, but I yes. think I think two I'll, two parts. Yeah, so I think a lot of disc two is very mellow and with mixed returns for me so it opens with eyes of the world set to opener five times in its first 17 years in the live repertoire and then there was a title shift in 1990 and it would become a really like staple set to opener from this point forward 33 Mm. times including this show from 1990 to 1995 double or no sorry sextuple the number of times that it was the set to opener in its first 17 years in the last six years of the grateful dead this starts with like a very extended easygoing intro with like really i think fantastic roles all over the toms by the rhythm devils it sounds like they're just kind of kind of getting warmed up but it sounds great i actually really liked like the first 20 seconds of this where they're just kind of noodling around and getting getting ready to really play I thought it paralleled set one really well where the drumming lured you in and captivated you. I said the magical rhythm of the toms with the sweet piano was hypnotic. Ooh, hypnotic. Yeah. I can see a hypnotic vibe throughout this song. Really kind of a lot of this disc, but yeah, I liked Brent's keyboard. There are some downright flutish MIDI tones that he's working Mm -hmm. with throughout this song, which fits eyes of the world perfectly. So I thought that that was great. And Phil, is absolutely cranked in the mix on this song, which I loved. He is so active. He's not really leaving many spaces. He's just kind of constantly just driving with that bass, and he sounded great. And then the drummers too, the whole rhythm section between Phil and then Billy and Mickey, I mean, they just like don't let up on the toms throughout this whole song. It's got this cool pounding effect that I think suits this song really well. And then the solo, the the real kind of tiger moment of this song, Brent has a big solo followed by Bob and then Jerry coming in with a basically a flute solo because of the midi tone that he's working with that sounds really good. So just I think that they used the midi really well on this song with tones that suit it. And so I was just really delighted by this eyes of the world. I thought it was, you know, 15 minutes of, of near bliss. Yeah. And I think it was a good continuation of the theme of just like starting out lazy, not really in any rush. This lazy Um, summer home. Yeah. Um, The masses liked it too. Number 65 on heady version, which for how often they played this song um, it's, it's represented in the top 15 to 20%. Yeah, I I thought that I thought that it was really nice. And then it goes into Looks Like Rain. So this was the first time they ever played Eyes into Looks Like Rain. Wow. Yeah. 
I mean, two songs they'd been playing for almost 20 years at the time. And so it's kind of crazy that they had never played eyes into looks like rain until now, but they would do it six more times, almost always to start set two from this point onward. So they, they found something that they liked on this day in Oregon. I think the transition in was really nice. And then it is like an especially mellow version throughout the first third or half of mm-hmm. the song. Unlike eyes of the world, Phil is giving this song lots of space to breathe. And um, it really just kind of gives lots of space for everything. Same with the drummers. They leave a lot of space on this song too, especially compared to eyes. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought the echoey ending that had the like thunderclouds middied in, I don't know if that was Brent or like another backstage, like maybe Bob Ray love adding some effects. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, with like a thunder machine or whatever, but it was really neat. And it had to have been really trippy on like a beautiful summer's day in Oregon to hear like thunder Thunder clouds clouds and rain clouds around you being like, whoa, uh, that must have been a neat, neat experience. I thought that that was a really cool portion of the song. Yeah, I agree. That was cool. And then from there, you transition right into Crazy Fingers. So a big like transitory jam to start set to. I mean, I'll just spoiler alert. It's eyes into looks like rain, into crazy fingers, into playing, into Uncle John's band, back into playing, then into drums, space, the wheel. And then only after the wheel do they finally take a break. Um, and just, you know, I think that the latest episodes of the good old Grateful Dead cast as we post this are about dead tech. Uh, I have not listened yet. I'm, I'll be excited to, but I think that they'll probably talk, I would think, significantly about the technology they were using at this time because the shifting of tones between these guys, like like I said, in Eyes of the World, Brent has a flute MIDI effect going on. It's like a flute synth. And same with Jerry at a certain part of that. But then they switch it up and they go back and forth and back and forth throughout the rest of set two which is really impressive. It's crazy that they could do that in the moment during the concert and switch it as much as they did. Yeah. So from looks like rain, as I said, we go into crazy fingers. Something about this song, man, just, I love it. So beautiful. So sweet. I've always been a huge fan of this song. Nice. Well, what did you like in particular about this version? I just like, I use that word hypnotic again, just a hypnotic melody. It's, there are a couple of flubs from Jerry on the guitar. There's a couple of drum notes out of place, but just overall the, the 
very just sweet, lazy vibe of this song. I just, I really dug it. I didn't take a ton of notes because I just kind of closed my eyes and sat back and enjoyed one of my favorites. So we actually disagree on this one. This to me is the low point of set two. I hate to say it, but I really lost interest in this song the longer it went on. Uh, It's about eight and a half minutes. The last like four minutes, there's just like not very many changes. I feel like they were kind of sleepwalking through it. So for me, I was not nearly as crazy about this song. I, I do really love in the background of the chorus, Jerry, sorry, while Jerry's singing the chorus, Brent and Bobby have these like really nice ooze that they're doing harmonically in the background. I think that that sounded really nice. And I kind of liked Brent's MIDI tone. It's like very delicate compared to what he's been doing in the previous songs. And I think he's a little bit quieter in the mix than he has been. But yeah, this song, I just, I didn't feel like they did a lot to keep me compelled as it went on, unfortunately. So Mm. yeah, not my favorite. I'm sorry to say, because I also really like this song and it's a rarity. You don't, you don't hear it a ton. No. And And so I was, I saw it on the set list and was like, Ooh, crazy fingers. And then, yeah, I was kind of disappointed by it. The masses side with me. <laughs> Love it when that happens. Uh, number 20, crazy fingers on heady version. Wow. Well, Hey, art is in the eye of the beholder. One man's amazing. Crazy fingers is another man's meh crazy fingers. <laughs> I will defer to you and the masses. And I will say good. Thank crazy you, fingers. Thank you. <laughs> Um, a song that I think we're both going to come back and agree on is awesome. Comes up next with a crisp playing in the band. Crisp. Everybody was on point. And like you talked about earlier, everybody kind of being mixed equally. Mm-hmm. You can hear everybody nail their parts of the song, especially in that high energy first half. Yeah. So I actually like the back half even better. <laughs> yeah, the back half is really good too. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah, but the first half, you're right. They're they're like really on it and like all over the plan theme and what what plan is um, in the first half. That mm-hmm. opening lick, my first note for this song was that opening lick comes in to say, "Wake up!" <laughs> like if you were if you were hypnotized by Crazy Fingers as you were. Then you hear the opening lick to playing in the band, and it's like splash of cold water to the face. Here we go. Absolutely. So Jerry's playing is a little bit sloppy at parts, uh, especially during like the arpeggios after the first chorus. Like that's he's not. It's not the tightest I've ever heard him play that. But I think that he finds it more and more as the song goes on. And then the, the last few minutes are like wonderfully chaotic, spacey, mitified, just like kind of controlled chaos. There's a term, I think, I mean, deadheads are probably familiar with it, but I think that it was coined in the fish world. Type one jamming is like the beginning parts of this song where you're playing, you're jamming on the theme of the song that you're playing. Type two jamming, it's still melodic, but it's not related to the song. You're just going for it. Whatever comes to you in the moment, just get after it. Space is type two jamming. And then there's a type three jamming where it's just like <laughs> abject <laughs> chaos. Yeah. 
there's a lot of type two jamming at the end of this song and they it's not for extended minutes but it's for you know bars at a time where they they go away from the playing theme and they just go real free form and i i really dug that so i i liked the end of this song especially and i thought that it was a really cool jammy 12 minutes yeah i totally agree um and then we go into one of your favorites next so tell me all about uncle john's band well what i will tell you is so playing uncle john's playing an uncle john's band sandwich with plain bread if you will this shocked me they only did that 10 times like this specific yeah not so i'm not talking about like playing something uncle john's something else playing or even like playing uncle's john uncle john's drum space playing like those they did that more times but Mm. just the this sequence playing uncle john's back to playing they only did 10 times and believe it or not this was the last time they ever did that this show the first yeah the first was in um 1973 november 1st 1973 and then they did it three times in the 70s then there was a run in 1988 where they did it three times in like a three-month span including twice within a two-week span they brought it back three times in 1989 this day in grateful dead history 62390 and then never again so i think that it's cool to hear it you know on this release and literally the, the latest version of it for me the like Really sounding arpeggiated playing that Jerry is playing at the end of playing in the band that really sets us down the road for this song is just lovely. I love that. Like at the last 30 seconds of playing in the band, at least as it's cut up on this album is great. You know what you're about to get and then they deliver upon it. There is really tight playing at the start of this song. I think that they after the very, like we said, out there, spacey jamming that they're doing at the end of playing, it's really impressive how quickly and tightly they all come together for the beginning of this song. And then just really spirited playing throughout the song. I think that this is like a very high energy, just enthusiastic version. The last solo break of this song is the hottest playing of the day for me. almost didn't want them to come back for the like um not for playing that i i was happy for that but at the end there's like that really hot solo and then it comes back to the yeah the uncle john verse i'm with you there it was so hot that i just kind of wanted them to ride that right back into playing i was like oh just keep up the energy um but it, it does work i mean i it's a cool effect to have it slow down to get more mellow and then go back into plan. But yeah. So you agreed too. you thought that that was so hot and it tasty. Was, it was so hot. Yeah. And 
because they were cooking from like the four to the seven, eight minute mark, like that whole back solo in Uncle John's band. This transition back into playing though, the transition from playing to Uncle John's I thought was good. This one back into playing I thought was it's sensational. Agreed. Like when Phil is still playing the Uncle John part on the bass, but then Jerry does the playing part on the guitar and those like meld together for 10 seconds before Phil and Bob like find a way to seamlessly go back into playing. I just thought that was really, really neat to roar right back into a high energy playing closer. Well, sandwich closer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. I thought that the, the last two and a half minutes of playing that you get before they go into drums in space was just terrific. Great little coda at the end of the sandwich to, you know, complete the thought, so to speak, from playing to Uncle John's to playing the band trilogy, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I thought that for me, I, I think that this was the high point of the show, to be honest. I agree with you. And you talked about for you, it was like the solo and Uncle John's. For me, it was the transition and back into playing, but just these big, big peaks here right before Drums in Space. So then we get into a, what is it in total? 15, almost 20 minute Drums in Space? Because it's yeah. like nine minutes of drums and then I think six of space. I thought it was a little longer. I thought it was like eight and a half of space. Oh wow, I'm way off. It was it was almost 10 minutes of space. Yeah. It's uh I think maybe part of the reason why I was thinking that is because compared to the RFK space that we heard a few weeks after this, mm-hmm. this was not nearly as spacey. It stays within the realm of melodic playing for more time, especially toward the end, than that like real re- real free form spooky space that we got in RFK. It makes sense that it's influenced by when and where they're playing. But this was a lot more pleasant, I thought, than the space that we got in RFK, which really kind of freaked me out. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you with that. But kind of like RFK, the drums are spooky and ominous before that. And I mm-hmm. think the low piano, like the really, really low piano, um, made it made one apprehensive. The space gets really light. I really liked Phil's thesis i don't know what you would call it but phil just going around and showing off and then they lighten up and it actually kind of turns sweet i think it's probably an extended intro to the wheel but yeah it turned from a darker drums because after i heard the drums i was like oh we're rolling into another scary 1990 space but we avoided that yeah, instead, as you're saying, it's more of a an extended intro into the wheel at a certain point. I mean, it just it does work for me quite a bit. I thought I thought that it was overall a pleasant drum space. One thing that is kind of a bummer, I do wish that drum space was on the same CD. I understand that for space reasons, like physical storage space, yeah, you couldn't <laughs> do that. But um, yeah, it it makes it so I because I didn't rip this onto my computer yet. And so I wasn't able to hear that full transition on the audio version. The only, I heard it on um, the archive, but it was kind of a bummer to have those broken up. Uh, For out of space, you get the wheel, as you said. And as I said earlier, what were your thoughts on the wheel? 
I was not very high on the wheel. You talked about crazy fingers being your low point. This was actually my low point of the second set. Um, it served the same purpose that I think you identified with crazy fingers. Like the, we're just going to take a step back, take a little reset and then get into the high energy stuff that comes next. I didn't, I wasn't very high on it. Um, Me neither. I, I did like vocally what, what they were doing at some parts, but I just, I wasn't really about it. So I read, uh, someone in the archive comments who's described it as chandeliers of sound, which I don't, I can't really grasp what they're saying there. I think it's a, a really cool description. I shout out to that person for coming up with that yeah, turn of phrase. Yeah. yeah. But, um, everyone who mentions this song in the reviews had really glowing things to say about it in the moment. It was probably lovely and especially coming out of space i think that this song would always have a positive effect on people but yeah for me it is a very slow tempo even for the wheel and yeah it just it didn't really grab me i i gotta say to be honest that's often the case for me with the wheel when it comes out of space it's just not my mm. favorite transition from space i think that it's fine but like as far as jerry songs go it's it's not in my top 30 <laughs> to be honest so um yeah i mean i understand like the slower tempo and it goes i think a little bit to what we were saying in our 81 episode about jerry's belief of like you know letting the people mellow out a little bit this seems like it served that purpose before we get into more spirited upbeat ending songs to the show but yeah not not my favorite either but again, the people who are there all seem to love it. And that's, I think, what matters more than what we think about it 30 years down the road on a CD. Right. What about the next song? How oh. did you feel about I Need a Miracle? Well, I, I love this song in general. And I yeah. really loved what they brought here. A good a high energy transition out of the wheel. The energy Jerry brought from start to finish, just top tier. And I just, the this song is it's always so good in the first half. And then they do like the key change switch up for the back half. And that's yeah. kind of usually what makes or breaks the song. And uh, I really like how everybody brought it in the back half. Just a great tune to get the energy back up in Oregon. Yeah. That like bringing it in the back half, especially the way that then where they take the show after the song, I think is really impactful and makes for a, an even better closing to the second set. Yeah, Jerry's guitar sounds great throughout this song. I think that there are some songs where we have talked about in the past. Uh, I, one of them is your song, New Minglewood, where you're like, the keys are low-key what makes this song. This one, to me, is it's Jerry on the guitar is what is the most compelling thing about this song. And like, how fiery is he going to sound is what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. One thing that I wanted to find, and I, I could not figure out how to how to find it is is this rare that this song was played this late in the show and i i guess not because we've heard a show where they played this really late before haven't we yeah when we talked about the 91 show um with oh, saxophone yeah. for madison square garden it was like the third to last song in that show too so yeah pod head experience with it is actually this is kind of on brand for where i need a miracle gets played 
well, it works at the end. I get why they would put it this late in the song or in the show, excuse me. So yeah, I, th- I thought it was really good, but I, I don't think that it reached the heights of the song that followed Morning Dew. No, I agree with you. I need a miracle. This version number 26 on heady version. Um, but yeah, when they, they wind it down and go into that, like really powerful first note of morning dew, mm-hmm. um, that just had a ton of passion in that morning dew. That's, that's what I felt like you could tell they were, they were like really passionate about playing that song at the end. I agree. I mean, morning dew is a song that I feel like often is an extremely passionate song. If you need further evidence of this, then look no further than the version on Europe 72. That's just about mm-hmm. as, as passionate a song as you will, or a pa- as passionate a performance as you'll ever hear. This version is quite good. I love how quiet the band gets for the guess it doesn't matter anyway part around like seven minutes. And then there's still like, that's like only halfway through the song. Like they pick it all the way back up and, and keep us going for another six minutes after that. Saturday night I had written down as an encore, but I don't think it actually is. I think that they didn't leave the stage and they played morning dew, took a quick rest and then finished the show with one more Saturday night. Here's why. Because I was trying to find out how many times they had ended a show with morning dew. It's like this, usually they, they would play another song after this or like morning dew would come out of space or, or drums in the seventies. And then they would have like another song, Johnny be good, one more Saturday night. And then their encore. I was surprised to learn that they only did play Morning Dew to close set two five times. This was not one of them that's listed on that chart. Huh. So all were between 73 and 79. And this was, according to the every time played table that you can get on uh, the website where you can buy the listen to the music play book that goes through like every song the dead ever played every show they played, every song they played, all sorts of stats. Um, I'll put a link to the to the table in the show notes because it's free and he updates it a lot. He has One More Saturday Night as the true set to closer of this show. Interesting. Did you think it was an encore? I did. I guess I just kind of assumed it was. I think I did too because it's not like there's a long break between the two and it doesn't sound like they cut out the audio for it. So No, yeah. It's a good point. Anyway, morning. But we, you and I have actually seen that in person um, at the City Field um, Dead and Co. 2022 
closer, like they ended, um, Bob went over, it's like a 45 second break. And then they went into deal as the encore. So I guess maybe that was the vibe, like a, yeah. a quick ender. Yeah. They didn't want to do the whole leave, come back. So I don't know. Well, in any case, really nice version. And I think a good version of one more Saturday night, it's a Saturday. Obviously they're going to play it, even <laughs> though it's not at night, but I thought this was a good version. Like a lot of late eighties, 90 versions, uh, bot, like the echo effect they put on Bob's vocals, I think is additive. It could maybe be a little much sometimes, but I didn't think so for this show. I thought this one more Saturday night was a good microcosm of kind of the whole show. It started with like a little slower tempo. They weren't in any rush, but the back half of the song really started to get going and sent you out on a high energy pick me up. And I thought that that kind of represented the show as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So speaking of the show as a whole, I don't think we need to talk about the cold rain and snow that's tacked onto the end of the show. Yeah. I mean, it, it was nice to kind of complete the, 69 show set but I, I didn't have any notes on it or anything yeah i listened to it it closes out the album so this is the last song you hear when you're playing disc three and then i wanted to compare it to the cold rain and snow that we did get on that set which is the first song on disc one and so i listened to them back to back i didn't really pick up very much difference between the two to be honest they're pretty similar versions of that song so I don't have any opinion about like which one they should have included versus not included. I think that the decision that they made to open the open the CDs with Cold Rain and Snow when it was the opener of that first show from November is good enough for me. So um, yeah, I'm like like you said, I'm glad to have it, but I, I didn't really take any notes on it or anything. So final thoughts on this show. What's your overall estimation of 623 1990? A barometer that you used back i think when we talked about volume 42 was with the physical cds like you know where where do you keep them how often are you re-listening to them volume 41 has lived in my car ever since it came out and gets played frequently in the car volumes 42 and 43 did not but i think volume 44 is going to i was after a couple listens, I really enjoyed this show. We talked about it. There are parts that are lazy and mellow. I think that's on purpose. It's a sunny afternoon in Oregon. They're taking their time. But when they do peak and go on these high energy runs, they are crisp. And yeah, it's late in their career, but they still got it. So I, I think this is going to live in my car and it will kind of transition into the question i want to ask you where do you rank dave's picks 44 out of the four that have been released this year and why Hmm, that's a good question so for the benefit of the audience let's recap really quickly yes four releases from this year so you have this one um as we said 623 1990 then you have volume 43 the most recent one before this was from um, November 2nd and December 26th, 1969. That one, you will remember, has some Acoustic Dead, one of the earliest Acoustic Dead recordings. Mm -hmm. Volume 42, which was released in April 
is from February 23rd, 1974. And volume 41 is from the Baltimore Civic Center, May 26th, May, May 1977. So I do think that 41 is the strongest, not shocking. It's May 20, May 77. Right. And I agree with you there. Um, we I criticize not the right word. We were like, this is so good. It's almost boring. <laughs> um, it's like playing golf with a good golfer who just hits it in the middle of the fairway every time. It's like kind of boring, but it's also <laughs> it's also exactly what you want. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that that is just like the strongest entry into the Dave's Pick series from this year. Volume 42 was really, I really liked it a lot. 74 dead. I, I'm a big fan. Um, volume 43. The playing is not as strong from beginning to end as the prior two releases, but the fact that there are all these weird songs that you won't hear elsewhere, it's like a curio, you know, it's like, Oh, this is kind of a cool thing to own. And then you have this one, which is just good. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to say, I think that 41 was my number one pick of the year. I think that if you're making me choose only one other one that I get to keep, for some reason, I've got to give the other two away. <laughs> Maybe to my my little cousin, Coco, who is a, sure. a bit of a head in her own right. There you go. So I'm, you know, I want her to be able to grow her music collection. So I'm saying. All right, Cokes, you can have the number two pick and the number four pick. I'm going to take take numbers one and three. I think I would give her this volume and volume 42, and I would keep 77 and 69. I think the 69 one is probably the third best offering of of this year's series um, just because of the, the uniqueness of it. But I do think the 74 one is better than this one. So I think that the I think this one would be my fourth pick of this year, to be honest with you. Um, I it sounds like that's not what you would say. But for me, it's just what you're looking for out of the dead. Uh 74 was such a strong period for them. I think that that, that, that show is really good. And that's why I would make that my number two pick to give to my cousin. And then uh, I would take this one and the 69 one six to one half dozen the other just in very different ways but because of the unique twists that come in that show i would take that one what's your rating i'd go 77 number one i would actually put this this one as number two and then the 68 69 combo number three for exactly all the reasons you talked about and then 74 really really liked it at the time but i would say it, it barely uh sneaks down into the the fourth place off the podium well that's a good sign for how strong the releases were this year as a whole oh yeah oh yeah we got all sorts of eras you know if you're looking for variety in your grateful dead releases you have 77 may 77 you know the gold standard then you have 74 a year in the early 70s that a lot of people love for good reason then you get primal dead 69 and late period dead in 1990 so a, a wide variety you get all you know all sorts of different tastes of what the dead offered throughout their career. So really good job by everyone at Grateful Dead, Dave Lemieux, um, the, their mixer Jeffrey Norman, everyone at Rhino Records for putting out this slate of shows in nineteen in two thousand twenty two. Uh, I'm excited to see what they're going to do next year. 
So overall, really good job with the Dave's Picks releases. One question that we usually ponder in these releases is which CD would we try to catch if all three were rolling off a cliff? For me, it's disc two. It's not even close. What about for you? For me, I think that I would go with disc. Man, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll say this. The one that I would let go very quickly would be disc three. I think that it's fine, but I think that compared to discs one and two, it doesn't stand up. And then I think for me, the high point being so clearly in my mind, playing Uncle John's playing, that's mm-hmm. why I would I would go for that one. I would actually grab disc one. I like the set one. I agree with you that that's the high point, but I, I just, something like the groovy, laid back nature of disc one, I, I also enjoyed. Fair. So I'd go for that one. So what what is your choice for your for your playlist? Our game, what song you take forward with you? Mine is from disc one. I'm going with the Cassidy, um, which is I don't know that there's going to be a lot of Cassidy's left to to pick because it's not a song I'm so high on. So I mm-hmm. think when in when it's there and you like it, seize it. What about you? Yeah, good pick. Uh, Am I allowed to take playing Uncle John's and playing? That's uh, sweet. Uh, it is like 20 something minutes of music. So yeah, I got a, I think you got a, okay. Then I can, I can give you Uncle John's with the plane reprise. Okay. It's sad that I don't get the opening plane to really give you the full picture of what's going on. Um, and we're going to, um, appeal this decision to NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell. We'll see what he has to say about this, Dave, but um, yeah, I'll take uncle John's in plan and um, I'll put this game under protest and say, I think I should get all three, <laughs> but if you're not going to let me have that, I'll take the uh, 11 minutes of uncle John's into plan and I'll take it with, with, with glee. <laughs> um, any closing notes for you before we get out of here? No, enjoy your Thanksgiving season. If you celebrate, drive, travel, fly, ferry safe, if that's how you get around. And uh, we will bid you good night. Good night. That's it, that's it. You got it.